Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode of SFF Yeah! is sponsored by World Fantasy Award winner Jade City by Fonda Lee. In this epic saga of magic and kung fu, four siblings battle rival clans for honor and power in an Asia-inspired fantasy metropolis. When a powerful new drug emerges that lets anyone, even foreigners, wield jade, the simmering tension between the Cowles and the rival Ite family erupts into open violence. The outcome of this clan war will determine the fate of all green bones, from their grandest patriarch to the lowliest motorcycle runner on the streets, and of Kekon itself. Jade City is the first novel in an epic trilogy about family, honor, and those who live and die by the ancient laws of blood and jade. Welcome to SFF Yeah, a podcast dedicated to all things science fiction and fantasy. This is episode 39, and we're recording on November 1st. I'm Jen Northington, and I'm here with Sharifa Williams, and we're coming to you from Book Riot. And today we're talking about the best opening and ending lines. Yes. And I was actually, I thought that this was going to be one of those, uh, one of those themes where I was like, this is so easy. <laughs> and it was not. <laughs> no, it, it was hard to narrow it down. It was really hard. Um, before we get into that, I want to give a quick follow-up. Uh, we talked about Unknown 9, the multi-platform media initiative uh, on a previous show. And one of our insiders, Deborah, has been following along and playing along with it. So she... Uh, kindly sent some notes for us to pass along to you. Um, she says the ARG, the augmented reality game, is fun. You kind of have to listen to the podcast to get all the clues, and I find the voice acting and scripting to be very stilted and hard to listen to. I don't think anything else has been released yet, but the ARG has gone well so far. The live event they had in New York was piggybacked off of a real play that also sounds like a trip, and the hidden video files and such have been really well done. So a little bit mixed, but overall positive. She's really enjoying it and she dropped there's like a test to you know get you into the ARG and she dropped Ooh. it into the insider slack and like a million people suddenly were all involved in this <laughs> so fantastic they're like quality assurance or quality control they are the, the insiders, insiders are so good for that yes <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome thank you Deborah thank you for the information um, okay, before we get into the news and then talk about our opening and closing lines, I'm going to tell you about our first sponsor, which is Running Press and Fantastic Beasts, the Magizoologist Discovery Case. I had to say that word a few times. So <laughs> <laughs> this deluxe enchanted replica of Newt Scamander's case is loaded with interactive special features to make any fan of the wizarding world feel like a master magizoologist. So this is a kit. And it includes some really cool things. So there's a collectible replica of the case, 
uh, carried along on Newt's adventures as packaging that doubles as a keepsake box with metal locks because you never know. There's a muggle-worthy dial that allows the case to be open in either non-wizard or wizarding modes. In non-wizard, a trick lid reveals mundane case contents, but in wizarding mode, further wonders are revealed. Ooh. And then there's sound activation and there's a notebook included that has images of the beasts encountered along Newt's journey. So this is a really fun package. It sounds like just the perfect thing for gift-giving season because that's coming up way faster than I am prepared for. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're looking for something for a big Potterhead, uh, somebody who loves the Wizarding World, you might want to check out Fantastic Beasts, the Magizoologist Discovery Case. Thank you for sponsoring today's show. All right. First story, mm. I do not know if you already predicted which one I would choose. <laughs> I feel like it's pretty obvious because it's Terry Pratchett. <laughs> yep. I can't help myself. So we talked about this very briefly uh, back when there was scant information, but... There was news of a Discworld adaptation, The Watch. So this is a book from the Discworld series that I haven't read, but I am always excited about a Discworld adaptation because they don't come that often. And so the the most recent news is that The Watch has landed at BBC America, which to me is very exciting because I generally tend to like the things BBC America does. Um, And so to give you some background about this, especially since I don't necessarily know everything about this story, but it's, it's one of the Discworld books, one of the many Discworld books, and it follows a cast of characters who are these policemen on this watch. And it sounds like they're going to be doing kind of a... They're going to stick to the original content, but it sounds like they're going to make it a little bit more timely, which is really exciting. And I feel like a lot of Terry Pratchett's stuff is kind of timeless and really fits in with, you know, the news of the day as well because of the philosophies in there. And uh, so I'm really excited about it. His daughter is still involved, Rihanna. She's still involved with uh, Terry Pratchett's production company and his partner, uh, Terry Pratchett's partner, when he was alive. And it's being written by the Musketeers and Das Boot writer, Simon Allen. And it's being co-produced with Narrativia, which I don't know anything about. But so the the watch features a lot of the Discworld characters that are familiar just because a lot of them are in other other novels within the series. So there's City Watch Captain Sam Vimes. And then there's the last scion of nobility, Lady Sybil Ramkin. I love the names, by the way, of all of these people. (laughs) And one of my favorite characters in the Discworld universe, which is Death, is in this book. And Death's goddaughter, Susan Stohelet, is my all-time favorite character, other than Tiffany Aching. But she is not in this story, unfortunately. But so they're describing this, which I found really interesting. They're describing the show, which is, by the way, an eight-part series. They're describing it as a punk rock thriller. (laughs) Which I'm like, that's interesting. 
But it does sound like they're making it kind of timely, as I said, and I'm really, really interested in seeing what they end up doing with this story and how they stick to things within the story and then branch out a little. So what I'm saying is I need to read The Watch before it comes out. What do you think about it? I... I have no, I don't really have any thoughts. Like I haven't. I still haven't read any of the Discworld books. That's okay. I, I know. One day <laughs> I will do it. One day I will. Um, it's a lot. It's a lot. There's so much, and I know there's multiple starting points, and that's fine. Yes. Um, obviously, when I do get to them, I will read them from your favorite starting point because okay. I would be a bad co-host <laughs> if I didn't. But um, I mean, I'm I'm sort of here for. I don't know. I was really. I was really disappointed with the Dirk Gently pilot of that they made. Um, I didn't watch the rest of it, so maybe it got better. But I just, I was not into that interpretation of Douglas Adams. Now, part of that is just because I am so obsessed with the original material. And they made so many changes. And I was like, this is not, this is clearly not for me. Like, this oh, is no. not for me. So, um, I, you know, I like... I actually, in this, in a case of this, I might want to watch it first just to see how it stands up on its own and then read them. I don't know. That makes I, sense. I might not. I mean, I, who knows what I will have read by the time this actually comes out. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm a big question mark currently. But I mean, that sounds like BBC America, I agree, has done some great stuff. So it, it's definitely interesting to me. Yeah. And there are some pretty interesting people involved, like... I feel like his daughter will mm -hmm. probably have a pretty – I don't know. I don't know if she's ever really had a firm hand on anything that's been done with um, Terry, Pratchett's, Terry Pratchett's work after his death. But I feel like I definitely trust her with this, obviously. So um, I don't know. And then there's – it's being executive produced by Hilary Salmon who worked on series like Luther – uh, and Luther has been great, so mm -hmm. I don't know. It remains to be seen. I'm excited. Maybe I shouldn't get too excited because I agree the Jerk Gently thing wasn't necessarily great. That's a hard story, though. That's a hard I, story. I don't disagree. Tell. I don't disagree. It was really more the casting than anything else that I was just like, what is this nonsense? <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Well, we'll see what happens. Uh, we don't – it doesn't look like there is a date for its release yet. So I'm sure we're going to hear more about this series as the project rolls out. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. I want to talk about the NOMO Awards, the 2018 NOMO Awards, um, which were announced very recently because Taddy Thompson, who we just got done doing a book Yay. club for, won the Best Novella Award for The Murders of Molly Southbourne, uh, which was a torn novella. <laughs> take, a, take a shot. <laughs> like, I feel like it's our very own drinking game. I know. Um, but every time we mention a torn novella. But anyway, yes. So so um, they are. These awards are specifically for African writers of science fiction and fantasy. And um, if you want to read more African sci-fi fantasy, this is a great starting place. Uh, the winner for novel was *Beasts Made of Night* by Tochi Onyebuchi, which I also really loved. And that was a stacked 
finalist list. Um, After the Flare by Daji Olakojun was on there, which I loved. Akata Warrior by Nadi Okorafor. Like there, and then a couple of folks who I didn't know, but um. Yeah, a really good list of authors and and many congratulations to Anya Bucci and to Thompson for their wins. Um, the short story writer, I don't know, the short story that one is called The Regression Test yeah. by Wale Talabi, which I'm definitely going to have to look up. And then there was a graphic novel as well, and I didn't know any of these graphic novels. I wonder how available they are in the United States. But I'm going to have to check it out. Um, Lake of Tears is the name of the winning graphic novel. So I am a fan of these awards because I'm always looking to read more international sci-fi fantasy and this is such I like I the ones that I do recognize I loved so it's always really nice to see what else there what else made it to the final rounds so yeah but I, I was like I you know feel a little like happy extra happy just because we had just talked about Rosewater by Tade Thompson so <laughs> yeah we just predicted it you know I mean right <laughs> like we we totally knew that was gonna happen we knew yeah. It's going to be a big name. This is really really great. I 100% agree that these lists are really great resources because sometimes the problem that happens is that, you know, we talk about these, these awards lists all the time and some of them have a lot of crossover, which is great. When, you know, mm-hmm. we there are authors we really love and we want to support on those lists. But sometimes it does kind of, you know, we don't get to see a lot of other writers from mm-hmm. a lot of other different places. And so sometimes these uh, books, as I can tell from not recognizing a lot of them, they just, you know, fall through the cracks because I and I'm sure other readers are so focused on you know, the writers that come out of the Hugos and mm-hmm. all the other, like, really mainstream awards that are focused on in the West. And I just, I am 100% going to pour through this list and look up all of these people and try to find some new books to read. So mm-hmm. congratulations to everybody. Yay. Hooray. Okay. What do you want to talk about next? I dropped this in at the very last minute because I literally just saw this like yesterday and I couldn't not talk about it because it involves libraries and it involves Dracula and Bram Stoker. (laughs) (laughs) So this is going to horrify any of the librarians that are listening right now. But it turns out that Bram Stoker was... All up in some libraries and (laughs) writing in their books, which is not a thing you should do. But he was scribbling Dracula notes in the margins of these library books, which is like, you know, it's a pretty interesting discovery, especially since... I don't know. For me, at least, I'm really fascinated about what goes on in the minds of writers as they're working on something that becomes like a classic like this. Like, Mm. that's very interesting. Like, recently they released Mary Shelley's notes and I found that fascinating and this is just like one of the newest sort of discoveries in writers who wrote classics and had terrible handwriting and a lot of this (laughs) it's so funny a lot of this article is like the research librarian at this library saying oh you know Bram Stoker was an awful writer but I guess Dracula was okay so this happened in uh, the London library in Mayfair and 
Bram Stoker was writing in those books and they have act- they have pictures of these books he was writing in and you can sort of you can get a glimpse of of what books he was checking out um and defacing at the library in order to study up for Dracula and all- he never actually visited you know Transylvania so he had to go through like tour guides and things like that or tour books so I just find this fascinating and if you read the article it's kind of i don't know if it's intentionally hilarious but yeah. maybe unintentionally hilarious like here's the quote from from this librarian stoker was a dreadful writer his other stuff is dreadful <laughs> yeah my favorite line is definitely uh when they asked him what he thinks of dracula as a novel it's a perfectly acceptable yes. book like that's some a plus plus librarian shade right there oh my goodness perfectly wanna... acceptable <laughs> it's so good it's so good oh, I, I have it. to go visit this library um Maybe see these books and talk to this person just because yes. he sounds hilarious. He does. <laughs> but if you're a fan of Dracula and Bram Stoker, it is definitely worth it just to like read through this entire article uh, for some opinions and to see these books that he wrote in. Yeah. Do you want to hear my best story about my relationship with Dracula? Absolutely. <laughs> so so I went to this summer camp for a few years when I was like 10, 11, 12. And one year there was a girl in my cabin whose last name was Stoker. Um, oh. And I was like, oh, man. And I was such a little nerd girl. I was like, oh, is your, like, are you guys related to Brom Stoker? And she was like, oh, yeah, totally. I was like, oh, no. I like, like oh, turned into no. like chin hands emoji. And she was like, oh yeah we have the original manuscript of dracula like i read it all the time and like oh it's got a coffee stain on the cover because my dad like put his coffee on it and i was like (gasps) and like this just goes to show how gullible i have always been like i 100 percent believed her of course she was definitely not related (laughs) to the actual author (laughs) oh innocent jen i know tiny innocent me i was just like ready to buy that bridge (laughs) she was so ready to sell it to me too like i can't have been the first person she told that story to it does um, sound like she had all the details sorted out. Like the coffee yes. ring on the book is a pretty like that's some writerly stuff right there. Yeah, exactly. It's pretty detailed. But yeah, that's my best Dracula story. That was amazing. <laughs> day. Oh, do you think we have time for one more? Yeah, we can do a quick one. Quick one. Let's talk, because I think a lot of our listeners will care about this. In case you did not hear, they have started casting the Game of Thrones prequel TV show. um, And Naomi Watts is going to be in it. It is set thousands of years before the events of the Game of Thrones. It's going to be in the Golden Age um, before, or I guess right before the Long Night and the Invasion of White Walkers. One can only assume that that will play a pivotal role in the new series um but yeah watts is going to play one of the untitled show's primary roles uh the character doesn't have a name yet but is described as a charismatic socialite hiding a dark secret Mm -hmm. which sounds like a role that naomi watts was born to play to be quite honest Um, yeah 
Absolutely. And I wonder if they're sort of positioning her as like the new show's Lena Headey. You know what I mean? They even have a similar look a little bit. Although mm-hmm. I think Lena Headey is like way more hardcore than Naomi Watts. But yes, so they have begun casting this. We know what it's about now. Um, so I guess stay tuned for more news coming out of there. It's uh, it's going to be an interesting ride. <laughs> yeah, there's going to be so much news. They're going to, you know that they're going to leak like every single little detail about this because everybody For is all sure. about the Game of Thrones. Yarp. Yarp, yarp, yarp. Okay, let's see. I will do our next sponsor and then we will start talking about our uh, best opening and ending lines. Um, so our next sponsor is Lost Arrow, which is book one of the Kalela series by Marshall Ross. Millennia ago, the starship Kalela buried itself seven miles beneath the surface of the Pacific Ocean, and we have no idea of its existence, and it has no idea of ours, except once that changes... Everything changes for the worst. Two human civilizations, one alien and one earthbound, are forced to come to grips with a future neither had ever imagined and a war nobody wants. It's a colonization story turned on its head and crafted with all the intrigue and layers of a nail-biting thriller. Readers are saying that it is like Dan Brown wrote a Crichton story, mm-hmm. which is, I definitely <laughs> immediately thought of Sphere when I read, the, partly because I just reread that this year. Um, speaking of which, does not particularly hold up. Oh, no pro pro tip Um, (laughs) but anyway it is lost arrows the first book in a three book serialized novel and they are each novella length and quick reading so for those of you who have been enjoying uh enjoying having shorter fiction around this is going to be one you're going to want to look out for um, it's the spaceship is buried in the Mariana Trench, which, as we now know from all sci-fi ever, is like the home. It's like the the trench of requirement. Like everything bad comes out <laughs> of the Mariana Trench, um, and it is a like spaceship story with a twist because it takes place entirely on Earth. So there is a lot of interesting stuff going on here. It's also a debut story from Marshall Ross, the author, whose work you might know, just not in novel form, because he is a long time advertising creative director apparently responsible for the corona beer campaign the career builder monkey spots from the super bowl a few years back and he now does the global ad work for porsche so that is super interesting i don't know that i've ever given a read to a book written by an ad director before that's super interesting so yes again that is lost arrow book one of the kalela series by marshall ross thank you so much for sponsoring okay let's see so so there were so many good options, and uh, I just had to sort of go with what was tickling me at the time of deciding what I was going to pick to talk about on this show, and I was going through my bookshelf. I'm sure you did basically the same thing. Yes. I just like pulled every sci-fi fantasy book off of my shelf, which is a lot, and was like flipping through them to see. Um, and the obvious one, of course, would have been The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien, but we all know that that has an iconic first line, and we can just like take it as a given yes so i picked a wrinkle in time by madeline lengel and let me tell you why the first <laughs> line of this which i always forget is where to go Ugh, i should have bookmarked this okay is it was a dark and stormy night yes like, <laughs> that so that 
like when I picked this up and saw that, I was like, oh my gosh, the moxie yeah. that Madeline Langle had to start her book that way. Because that has been a cliche for like over a hundred years. Like the first use of it was a dark and stormy night. I looked this up. Was in wow. the a- early 1800s. Washington Irving wrote a short story that began. It was a dark and stormy night. And then Edward Buller Lighton is the one that everybody thinks of when you read it. And there are awards named after him and everything. But yeah, it's it's like it's so iconic. And for her to pick it to start this book, like I just and apparently she even had a fight with her publishers about it. Like her UK publishers changed it to be something like it was a dark and stormy night in a small village in the United States um, because they just like couldn't leave it alone. And she got mad about it. So she clearly did it very deliberately. And I just have to respect that. Um, And, you know, when I read this in my head, the emphasis is it was a dark and stormy night. Like, it it really was a dark and stormy night when this book kicks off. And in my head, like, that just makes it even more entertaining and fun to me. So, yeah, I couldn't, once I picked up this book and saw that that was the opening line, I was like, there's no way that I'm not picking a (laughs) wrinkle in time for my first book to talk about. And then, you know... I reread it because of the movie, which I quite enjoyed, actually. Like, it was a little uneven, and, you know, it wasn't a perfect adaptation by any means. But I just, I really enjoyed it. And then rereading this was such a pleasure. Um, Because the characters are still so strong, you know? Meg, like, oh, Meg Murray. She just kills me every time. And Charles Wallace. Um, So, yeah, I just really, I I I had a nice little trip down Nostalgia Lane. That sounds fantastic. I didn't even remember. I read A Wrinkle in Time again for a second time very recently because the first time I read it was like, I think it was in third grade Mm. or fourth grade, and I did not understand what was going on. (laughs) So I was like, I should really read this because it's a classic and it's short anyway. And, you know, I just want to remember uh, what happened and figure out if uh, maybe I just can't understand this book at all. I did understand it. But <laughs> there are a lot of iconic lines in there. Like there was that one that was just going around recently about, you know, holding on to your anger and everybody oh, yeah. loved that. Yeah. That yes, was... you will need your anger, Meg. Yes. yes. Or, you know, the line that killed me, especially when I saw it performed on screen, was I give you your faults. I was just like, oh, oh that just like gutted me. It's like right to the heart. <laughs> I got goosebumps. Yeah, same. <laughs> That's so good. That's a really good first line. Yeah. My first line might be pretty obvious. I don't know. But I chose The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy nice. by Douglas Adams. And so the first, the line is, far out in the uncharted backwaters of the unfashionable end of the western spiral arm of the galaxy lies a small, unregarded yellow sun. And this is all, this very yes. long sentence is all to, like, bring us to Earth eventually. And how, you know, whatever, how how meh Earth is and all of its inhabitants and how unpleasant the people there are. And, you know, as with probably many sci-fi readers, The Hitchhiker's Guide is the book that introduced me to Douglas Adams' work. And mm-hmm. that first line told me everything I needed to know about his style, which was basically, I love it. And this style of writing and this style of story became, like, kind of 
my go-to for science fiction. So when I read that first line, so maybe this is like even a more personal, this is my favorite first line thing. I feel like a lot of people probably love this first line, but it just did it for me. Like right away you get the absurdity and the irreverence and you're there in this moment in outer space. And that's what I really just love about his writing style. It's so engrossing. You forget where you are and that his quote unquote logic isn't the only logic. And so of course, if you haven't, if you haven't heard of this story, I hope, I really hope you have. Uh, this, you know, follows a mixed up band of space travelers that are, who are journey, journeying through space and particularly Arthur Dent, who's this sort of everyman, mediocre schlub, who's just unceremoniously plucked out of his humdrum life to go on this grand adventure. And like in the style of this first sentence, it's very irreverent and absurdist and the characters themselves are all mixed up and dysfunctional like Zaphod Beeblebrox who's like the totally mad president of the galaxy uh not so far removed from reality <laughs> I was just gonna say that's like yeah less funny now <laughs> I know I was thinking about re-watching the movie the adaptation mm-hmm. and I was like oh no am I gonna find this funny or infuriating yeah. <laughs> and I can't I don't know I don't know if I will but um yeah, so you've got that character, you've got Trillian, who's still one of my favorite, like, feisty ladies of literature, and Marvin, who's the Eeyore of robots. Yes. It's just so good, and Douglas Adams has this style that I just haven't found anywhere else. Like, I found a lot of real likes. Uh, I'm very happy to have found a lot of real likes. Like, Becky Chambers gives me the feel of the, the company of characters who are going out on the space expedition, and I love her books, obviously. Um, but, you know, there was something so iconic about the way he wrote, and that first line just will probably stick with me forever because it's just so unique and unusual, just like everything in this incredible, insane book. So, (laughs) yeah, again, that was The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. You know, I remember reading them for the first time as a teenager, and I think that was the first time that I had ever read footnotes in fiction, like, oh, a, yeah. and comedic fit, footnotes, no less. And you're so right, like that first line, it's like long, it's a, it like it's a little bit meandery, um, and that's the book is so like full of digressions and weird asides and footnotes, and you know these running jokes that take pages to build <laughs> up. And And it's so true. You can tell all of that kind of from that first line, which is this like long elaborate thing that just is like, earth is dumb. (laughs) Exactly. Earth Earth is small and nobody cares and it's dumb. (laughs) It's so good. It's It's so so good. good. Oh, Oh, boy. Um, so when we picked this topic, we were originally just going to do opening lines, but then I had just finished An Easy Death by Charlene Harris, and I was like, Sharifa, I need to do last lines as well, because <laughs> this book has one of my favorite last lines that I've ever read. Um, wow. I know. And I'm going to read it to you now. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. The line is, I was getting that restless feeling, and I was tired of admiring my refrigerator. <laughs> Like, what? that is it's so wonderful. 
It's especially funny now. I did not intend to do this, but reading it like directly after the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Now I'm thinking about the fridge and the Dirk Gently, which oh, one yeah. is it? I can't remember the evil refrigerator. Um, but that's not what's going on here. Um, so An Easy Death is uh, the first book in a new series by Charlene Harris, who I'm not like a huge diehard fan, but I pick her up every now and then and mostly enjoy them. And this one I thought um, was pretty fun. It's It's a... And sort of a weird Western, um, in, in a string of weird Westerns we've had lately that sort of reinvent the history of the United States. So this one picks up, um, FDR has been assassinated or had been assassinated. And the United States is going through the Depression and has like kind of lost all its international power. Um, and so it's been carved up a little bit by, competing outside interests. So like there's a section of the U S that's now under, or the former United States that's now under control um, by the British empire. And there's a section that's like all like, you know, the Holy Roman empire and there's, and you know, Mexico is sort of creeping upwards and taking over bits of the Southern United States. And so there's all these different sort of, and, and the, um, the Native Americans have, you know, carved out their sections. And so the United States is a very different sort of territory than we're used to. Um, and the main character who is named Elizabeth Rose is a gunny, which means that she's super good with pistols. And her job is to protect like people traveling through frontier areas um, for whatever reasons her, her team gets hired to provide protection. And she's not the leader. She's just like one of the, you know, gunslingers in this gig um and a gig goes very wrong at the opening of this book um and like the body count in this book can i just say is so high um like everybody (laughs) dies everybody like not a spoiler but just like everybody dies um and so she and then this turns into her getting having to take on a job that actually like has to do with her family's secrets um and it's really like i said really bloody there's a lot of shooting um and there are it's a really it's a wacky sort of like world to be traveling through um but it was it was very fun it was very page turnery and it's you know there's actually like I want to give it like a C plus for representation. Like Harris doesn't make the mistakes I was expecting. Like Native Americans are actually portrayed like respectfully. Um, And, you know, there are characters of color throughout the book. Although again, like you can't get too attached to anybody (laughs) um, is how I'll say that. Um, So, uh, but it's interesting. It's really interesting. And I definitely am going to be reading the next one because Elizabeth Rose is such a dry dry narrator like she is just so sort of short and pragmatic with her words and her temper and her like i just she was just a she was really entertaining like totally murdery sort of deadpan narrator yeah i like i'm here for a murdery deadpan narrator is what i'm saying um and that's what she was and then for the book to end on that note like i was tired of admiring my refrigerator (laughs) you're just like what is going on it's so good um so yeah it is a it is a really stellar final line so again that's an easy death by charlene harris i'm probably just comparing it because of the weird western theme but it kind of sounds a bit like River of Teeth by Sarah, like the weird Western yeah. theme and setting and 
not super dissimilar. I mean, I think Sarah Gailey did way more in terms of representation. Yes, she did obviously. A lot. She did a lot and it was all really great. Um but yeah, this one and then Dread Nation and then I think I talked did I talk about the Black Gods drums in here yet? Maybe not. Maybe that was in my newsletter. I've lost track. But there's a there's a novella um, by P. Jelly Clark. Oh yeah, called, you did. Oh yeah, I did. So right. So the Black Gods drums similar. Like the United States, you know, is sort of having a different history. Um it's a whole string of these coming out and i'm super here for this trend like give me all your reinvented weird historical fiction with magic like i'm here for it so yeah i have to pick that one up just for the last line that was really good good. (laughs) okay um for my last line because it's fall and we're recording the day after halloween i thought about the rules of magic for this pick because i was the same i was very overwhelmed and also by the way this is a kind of a tangent but i realized like i need to buy more physical copies of books because i was like where are all of my science fiction and fantasy books oh they're in my phone as audiobooks (laughs) and ebooks that have been returned to the library so i don't know i guess i learned that i have to buy more books which is never really a problem so but i i thought about this one because it was in theme with the season and because i love this last line so much and the line is Know that the only remedy for love is to love more. Ooh. Uh, And I am not like, I'm not like a lovey-dovey type of person. I tend to steer clear of some of that just because that's not who I am. But that, like, even reading it again just now was like, like I was tearing up because this whole story is this story of love. And if you've read Practical Magic or you watched the movie, you know that love is this really big theme in the story where Sally and Jillian are basically cursed in love. And the story is a prequel. Uh, The Rules of Magic is a prequel to Practical Magic. So it follows the ants in Practical Magic, uh, Franny and Jet, and their brother Vincent. So... You will probably remember Franny and Jet, maybe not Vincent. If you watch the movie, um, you don't remember Vincent. I don't think he was in the book either. No, but he was yeah, not. Yeah. Okay. So I was immediately like, who? Did I miss something? Um, so the whole time I was reading this, I was like, well, what became of him? And what happened to the aunts? Why did they end up together? And, of course, that's the point. You want to know what happened to them. And the story does follow that the curse that's in practical magic that was cast in the 1600s uh by maria owens who was ostracized and made to pay for loving a really truly awful man and a witch hunter uh but when we meet the kids in the story they don't know anything about this they don't really know anything about the history of witchcraft in their family they have these really weird rules so they know that something is up So, for instance, you know, they can't wear black or own cats or light candles. And their parents purposefully lead a very mundane life. So, Franny and and Vincent and Jet are kind of on their own and they don't really fit in anywhere. Vincent is like this heartthrob everywhere he goes, even as a young as a young boy, which becomes very problematic um, in his life and in the story. And he ends up leading this sort of shady life. 
But they're all kind of trying to find this one thing, and they're all very much alone. And you realize, like, the one thing that's missing from their lives is this love. And they all pursue it in their own way, but it goes really, really wrong because of this curse. And so as you follow them through this story and through all of these really terrible tragedies that are you know, supernatural in nature. Like, it's the worst luck you could imagine. And it involves the people they love the most. So you go through all of these tragedies and you see how their dynamic and their lives are changed by this curse. And then you get to this line at the end and it's like, it feels like, it makes you feel like you've been through it with them and like you, there's nothing you can do but to keep loving people. And it was just so like, it was just so touching. And Alice Hoffman wrote this story so well. Like there is no way you could not get emotional at the end of this book. And with that line, because the way it's set up, like I'm obviously not going to tell you all of the things because I think you should read this book if you hadn't. But the way it's set up, it's just like, it just gets you, gets you right in the heart. Um, so yeah, again, that was The Rules of Magic by Alice Hoffman. One of these days I'm going to get to that. I'm going to, it's oh, going to happen. it's so good. It's Um, all right. My next pick is The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemisin, which obviously we've talked about a lot, <laughs> but I was, I, this is, I think it has really amazing first and last lines. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to talk about it for that. Um, And the first line of this book is a question, which is a bold move, I think. Uh, And it's, let's start with the end of the world. Why don't we? Um, And I think that is amazing because it does set up a bunch of things all at once, right? First of all, you know from the get-go that the narrator is talking to you for at least part of the book, which is one of the most amazing things about the fifth season, I think, is its narrative structure, which is this sort of spiraling helix type thing that I won't go into too much because I don't want to give anything away. Um, but when you like figure out where the narrative structure has been leading you, there's this beautiful moment of reveal. But a lot of it is in this is this like second person, like you, like talking directly to you as a reader. And let's start with the end of the world. Like you're starting with the end of the world. Like you're starting in the middle of the apocalypse. Like I love that. I love that it's so bold. And that's what the book is doing too. You're like, it's it's setting you up to know like, all right, so the end of the world is where we're starting. Where are we going to go from there? Um, and it just sets it up so beautifully, If you, which you know if you've read it. And that's kind of the interesting thing about this exercise has been like, oh, of course I know where these books go uh-huh. or, or how they got to this ending line. But if you didn't know, like you, you, you know, you have no idea, but then I think this is the mark of a really good opening and ending line is that it encapsulates in some way the entire book, uh, which is such a feat. Like it makes me wonder, like, do they go back and rewrite the first lines of the book? They must, right? Like, or, or maybe you just arrive at it perfectly and you know, I don't know. Like how maybe does that Jemison work? Jemison is just a genius. Well, that too. <laughs> like that's definitely true. Um, if you have not read this series yet, this is the first book in a trilogy, which is complete. If you have been a waiter on that, um, and 
it does take place in a world where the culture is sort of built around understanding that a cataclysmic upheaval is going to occur every hundred years, every who knows how long, but it's going to happen. Um, and so the lore is all built for humanity to survive this. Um, and it is not our world. It's like a second world. Um, and, and there are people who have earth powers um, and they are both feared and sort of required by the civilization that's in power currently uh, to try to keep things running smoothly and keep, you know, the earth stable and keep their civilization going. Um, but they are also uh, citizens who do not have the power are taught to fear them and to report them. And in some cases they're murdered and it's this whole oppressive regime situation. Um, and you're following three different voices in the fifth season, uh, getting different pieces of this story. Um, and it's an amazing series. This is the one that was the triple winner for the Hugos. Yes, I'm right. The Hugos. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, which is a feat no other series has accomplished. No other writer has done that. Um, for such good reason. It really is masterful. So then the last line of the book, I remember reading it and being like, wait, what? Um, like, you can't end a book there. What? Um, and the last line is, tell me, he says, have you ever heard of something called a moon? <laughs> and, okay, here, look, it's also a question, right? It's also a question. Yes. So you've got a book that starts and ends on a question, which is really bold. And you're like, Again, as the reader, like, well, obviously I've heard of a moon, but like, why don't these characters know what a moon is and what is coming next? And oh my gosh, like, <laughs> what does this mean? And I remember reading that the, when I first read this book, way before any of the others were going to be available. And I was like, oh, like, I have to wait <laughs> to find out, like, That's why painful. don't they know about moons and what does this mean? And oh my gosh, it was, it's really, it was a really intense way I experienced it as a really intense way to end a book. So, again, that is The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemisin. Just total genius. When I saw that you chose that book and then, like, I refreshed my memory about the first and last lines by looking in the book, I was like, how am I going to – how am I going to top that? How am I even going to match that? <laughs> so it was very yeah. hard to come up with a first and last <laughs> line book, I must say. Uh, but I ended up – Choosing the House of the Spirits by Isabel Allende, and it's a classic, um, and it's a wonderful book. By the way, her debut novel, I Whoa. am astonished. It got rejected a lot, too, so I'm really glad that somebody, you know, took a leap and published it because it's amazing and it's been translated a lot. Um, but so the first and last line, this is one of those that sort of it just brings everything together so the first line and I read this when I was probably too young to read it because there was a lot of terrible stuff that happened in it but I remember reading this first line and being like oh my gosh I'm invested I'm in uh so it's Barabas came to us by sea the child Clara wrote in her delicate calligraphy and Ooh. it's just so moody and it speaks to this journey and Barabas is a, a dog. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just it's just this incredible line. You don't know who this person or rather animal. You don't know it's an animal. You don't know anything about what this means, but it's just like there's a journey that's happening and there's something mystical that is happening. 
And then the last line is, it begins like this, Barabbas came to us by sea. So it just brings you right back to the beginning, which is kind of like, after you go through this story, this is a multi-generational saga that is so sweeping and there is so much that happens in it. It's about, you know, family drama as well as political strife and how the politics of the day and the country of Chile affect this family. And so you go through so much in this story and then you come right back to the beginning to the child, Clara, who is sort of documenting these things that are happening. And Clara is this exceptional character. So this is magical realism in case you're like, why are you talking about this book on SFF? Yeah, <laughs> this is magical realism. Um, and Clara has these sort of paranormal oracular powers and she's able to predict things that happen. And she predicts this tragedy that begins the story of this family, um, it starts with the Del Valle family and then it moves on to the Chureba family. And a lot of the story takes place in this place called the Big House on the Corner. It's this really big mansion where the Chureba family lives for generations. And so if you love a multi-generational saga, this is kind of it. Like this is the big multi-generational saga. This introduced me to those. And I was like, how is it possible to encapsulate the lives of so many people in this book and to be so thorough about it? And then you have Clara who's sort of documenting, she's keeping a diary of her life and she ends up being kind of mute through most of her life. So a lot of the story is about her and about her observations. And the story really centers around the women in this family and the tragedies that they go through and the men they marry and they love. And I should say, if you do, if you're like, oh yeah, I should read that book, I just want to warn you in advance that there's some trigger warnings for rape and, you know, sexual assault and the men in this book, a lot of them are really horrible people. So just know that going in, it, it can be a little bit of a rough read. But I just found this so, so fascinating and so engrossing. And that first and last line just, you know, I, I don't know. It, it just made the story for me. So again, that was The House of the Spirits by Isabel Allende. Wonderful. Um, I forgot to give my trigger warnings when I was talking about my oh, books. Yeah. So I'm going to rewind briefly. An Easy Death by Charlene Harris gets a trigger warning for rape. And The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemison gets a trigger warning for harm to children. Yeah, rough. <laughs> and on like that immediately. Note, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of our opening lines and closing lines. Um, thank you so much for listening. As usual, you can email us at sffyeah at bookriot.com. And if you like the show, if you have any feedback, please do review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find us. And you can find us online. You can find me on Instagram. I'm at S Zainab Williams. That's S Z A I N A B Williams. How about you, Jen? I am on Twitter and Tumblr as Jen IRL, and that is Jen with two N's IRL. And until next time, happy reading, everyone. Happy reading. <laughs>